Um, also, uh, another two announcements I forgot. The first is, uh, Chris can put it up there now, uh, the men's and women's retreat. We just had our full GCF retreat a few weeks ago. We're having uh, uh, a men's retreat and a women's retreat later this spring. Those are the dates. Uh, men's retreat is March 20th through the 22nd. Women's retreat is April 10th through the 12th tentatively. Um, we just want you at this point to put those in your phones so that you don't schedule things so that later when that date comes and I say, hey, what are you doing that weekend? You can't say anything because it's already marked off in your calendar. So uh, that kills that excuse. Uh, also, uh, please come back next week. Next week we're having a guest speaker. Some of you may know him. Jesse Kemp um, is going to be preaching uh, for us here. He is a guy who was really involved uh, with GCF, and he and his wife have now moved down to Corvallis. Uh, he took a, uh, a job at a church down there, but he wants to come up um, and preach for us, and so that'll be cool as he looks at Jesus feeding the 5,000 next week. So please um, come back next week. Um, so anyway, those are the end of my delinquent announcements. And I, I am a proud product of the University of Montana here. Uh, and when I was a senior, uh, I produced, through the journalism program, I produced uh, a documentary. And the documentary was on how the internet is reshaping Montana. And, and it started as something simple uh, because it was really in the climax of the social media boom that was going on. And so we wanted to just see what Montana's the last best place, a, 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 a rural frontier space that's disconnected from a lot of things. And so as we started looking at the internet and how it impacts Montana, we saw really um, that the biggest thing the internet was doing in Montana is it was connecting this isolated, random, outcast state, which is what we are up here, um, it started connecting us to movements happening nationally and movements happening globally. And we live in an era where cultural movements are birthed largely over social media. And that's why in Montana it was so interesting to see how that had had an impact on us as a state. But if you look at what social media has done, even in the last six years, we've seen social media birth social movements which has caused um, government overthrows in Egypt, and we've also seen social media bring in life-changing things like planking. Um, do you guys remember planking? Okay, it was huge. It was all over the place. Everyone was tweeting about it, everyone was Instagramming it, um, and being cool, and you saw people doing it on campus, and I can tell you in the last year, I have seen zero people planking. I've seen it not mentioned, I haven't seen it done, mainly because people are like, well, we're just laying on the ground in a board-shaped thing, and it's not really that entertaining. Um, but why? Why is it not here anymore? Is it because it was dumb? Well, no, because Downton Abbey's dumb, but people still watch that. And so it's not just because it's dumb, but ultimately, why it lost popularity, why we're not talking today about planking on social media, is because the followers stopped doing it. They stopped planking, they stopped talking about it, they stopped tweeting about it, they stopped Facebooking about it, if you're like 36 and you still use Facebook. Um, and this is really true in all social movements. This idea of of how to sustain momentum. I was reading in the Harvard Business Review, that makes me sound really smart, um, and, and they had this article in it that gave some essentials which have to be present for a social movement to survive. And it gave five of those, but three of those were, were these things, a decentralization of leadership, meaning it's not tied to any one individual or one isolated component of people. It had to have sustainable chatter meaning that people are talking about it and they're promoting it and it's not something that it has a peak like, like with planking, that chatter died. No one talks about it anymore. But it's sustainable and it's broad. And then lastly, advocacy. Are people doing and advocating the thing which this movement is about? 
And if a group is to create anything sustainable, what this article says, its proponents have to be committed at least to those three things. A decentralization of leadership, sustainable chatter, and advocacy. And what culture would call activists, people who join social movements, the Bible calls disciples. People who follow, people who join, people who are imitators. And those things are equally as valuable in discipleship as they are in business. Decentralization, sustainable center, and advocacy. And tonight we're going to look at discipleship in the Gospel of Mark and what it means to be a disciple and why Christianity, looking at the, the broad scope of social movements. In fact, today I was looking at, so I don't subscribe to the Harvard Business Review because I'm not smart enough, um, but all I did is search up anatomy of a social movement on Google. Um, and this came up, and there are, there are hundreds and hundreds of scholastic journals published about how to track and understand social movements. And really people can't understand it, but if you look at the scope of social movements, there hasn't been a, a social movement as long, as diverse, and as sustainable as Christianity over human history. It's endured through civilizations, language barriers, uh, empires, through circumstances and persecution, through plenty. And so in looking at Mark 6, we're going to see what this means. What does discipleship mean? What is uh, the social longevity of the gospel? And as we look at Mark 6, um, here, here's kind of a summary outline sentence of what we're going to see in this. And it is that discipleship is something started by Christ who empowers his church to face persecution and plenty for the fame of his name. Discipleship is something started by Christ who empowered his church to face persecution and plenty for the fame of his name. And so as we begin to look at that, I just want to pray for us tonight. So Lord, we come before you um, here on the beautiful campus of the University of Montana, uh, and we are, we are a grateful people. We're grateful to come together to have fellowship and to sing songs and to be united um, horizontally, God, but we also want to be united vertically with you. We don't simply want to come and have connected with one another, but in our connecting with one another, we want that to ultimately um, be sustained and result in a greater connection towards Jesus Christ who has bought us as the church, as followers, as disciples. And Lord, I pray as we look at what that means in Mark chapter 6, that it resonates deeply in inside of our hearts, and that it's not only head knowledge, but it becomes hand knowledge, and that we do, and that we follow, and that we act, and that we live like disciples out of the overwhelming reality of what Christ has called us to. And so Lord, we pray for tonight, give us ears to hear and hearts to do. We pray this in your name. Amen. So last week, um, those of you who are with us in Mark chapter 4 and 5, we saw Jesus presenting three powerful proofs Um, as to who he was. Three powerful proofs um, proving, that's what proofs do, they prove, uh, proving Jesus' divinity, Jesus' lordship, and Jesus' power. And even though this was a pre-Twitter era, what Jesus just did was spreading like wildfire through the surrounding communities. Um, I I mean, what, what did you do today? Okay, maybe you got, how many of you took a test today? Anybody take a test today? Good for you, okay? In one day, uh, Jesus calmed a storm, cast 2,000 demons out of one man, and brought a dead girl back to life, okay? Your day is not cool anymore, huh? Um, and, and 140 characters or not, this is just, this is tearing apart the Middle East of the news and the message of what Jesus is doing. It's spreading. Why? Because it's amazing. People don't understand what's going on. They just know it's something amazing. 
And immediately following these proofs, Jesus, so he's doing this up at the Sea of Galilee, and he travels about eight miles to the southwest of Galilee, back to his hometown um, of Nazareth. And this is where we pick up the story in Mark 6, verses 1 through 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So I was watching The Office last night, because that's what I do. Um, and, and it was the episode where Michael calls his mom um, and tells her that he's engaged when he's not actually engaged. Um, and so you, you see this dialogue happen, and Michael says, hey, mom, I'm engaged. And she's like, no, you're not. And he says, mom, why do you always say that as if, as if he's done this before? And she says, because you're never engaged, uh, because he had done this before. And see, the thing was is that Michael's mom, and those of you who don't know The Office, welcome to the 20th century, although we're in the 21st, so joke's on me. Um, <laughs> Michael is this, this weird, socially awkward, you can never get a handle on him guy, and his mom knew that. And because his mom knew Michael, she knew that what Michael was doing really probably wasn't true. And a similar, yet less weird thing is what Jesus is encountering here in his hometown. He is teaching these amazing things. We saw that twice in the Gospel of Mark, where Jesus taught something and the crowds responded with, man, he teaches with a different authority. He teaches with a new authority. And he's doing these amazing acts. And they're like, wait, 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 stop. We know this guy. This is Jesus. This is Joseph's son. He's a carpenter. He built my dinner table, right? I saw him grow up. He is bad at riding a bike. I know him. I know his brothers. I know his sisters. His sisters flunked my math test. How is he doing these things? Five questions they give, like boom, 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 boom. Who are you? Why are you doing this? Who gives you this power? I know you. What happened? What kind of puberty did you go through? Then now you're calming storms and preaching with a new sort of authority. But here's the deal here. This is the important aspect of what happened, is that their familiarity with Jesus had blinded them to the power of who Jesus really was. Their familiarity with Jesus had actually blinded them to the overwhelming person of who this man was. This wasn't just a boy. This was God in the flesh. This was Jesus himself. And, and you see the word here, Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. You see, Mark, who's, who's writing this book, is using his words very carefully here. Because so far, and we've pointed it out as we've gone through Mark, the normal reaction of the crowds to Jesus is what? Amazement. And when Jesus preaches, and when Jesus, preaches, and when Jesus uh, does a miracle, Mark always says, and the crowds were amazed. And here Mark flips the story. The crowd is hostile, and Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. Jesus is, is dumbfounded at the inability of his hometown to see who he is. 
And Mark says this phrase that Jesus could do no mighty work there. But it's funny because he's like, Jesus could, he, he didn't really do any mighty works. He just laid some hands on people and healed a few of them. <laughs> like for us, that's mighty work. For Jesus, that's nothing. But why? I mean, stop and think. This is Jesus. Jesus has set a track record so far of doing mighty works. Jesus is the doer of great things. And yet in this moment, at the rejection in his hometown, he can't do much of them. Why? Is it because Jesus is like sad and downtrodden and he's kind of pouty and doesn't want to do it? Or maybe he's, got, he's like a magical wizard and when he's sad, his powers aren't as strong like Frosty the Snowman. I don't even know why I said that. Frosty the Snowman doesn't have magic powers. He's just a talking <laughs> snowman. My notes say... Um, <laughs> So so why? Why do you think Jesus could do no mighty work when he was in Nazareth? Well, Luke, in his gospel, fills us in a little bit more in chapter 4, verses 28 and 30. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst... He went away. So why couldn't Jesus do a mighty work? Because they were trying to throw him off a cliff. Okay? Jesus didn't just become disappointed in this town, be like, I can't do anything for you. Jesus left because these people weren't just opposed to him. They were hostile towards him. They were trying to kill him. And yet, as Luke said, Jesus just passed through their mist. Mists. Mist. Mid. Midst. Jesus passed through the crowd. Um, why? Because they, could, they ultimately couldn't do anything to Jesus without Jesus allowing them to. Jesus, knowing this wasn't his time, he just chose to pass through them um, and, and, and go then to safety. Why couldn't Jesus do work? Because they wanted him dead, because of who he was. And I've already told you the thrust of this sermon is about discipleship. Well, well in the drama of discipleship, this story we just read is the inciting incident. This, this is the moment in the story, if you're, if, you're, if you're watching a movie, this is Batman's parents being killed. How is he going to respond to this? What's going to happen next? This is the catalyst, because for the first time in the narrative of Mark, in the past the crowds are happy, in the past crowds want him, but in, for the first time the crowds are now opposed to Jesus. You see, Jesus came and he said this in Mark chapter 2. I have come to preach, so I must go to other towns. Jesus came to heal, yes. Jesus came to do miracles, yes. But ultimately, Jesus came to preach a message of repentance and belief in himself. And now the crowds, which, which at one time wanted his teaching and wanted his miracles and wanted his presence, they are now hostile, opposed, and murderous towards him. Jesus is not able in this moment to accomplish what Jesus said he came to accomplish. He's ran out of his hometown, he's rejected by his own family, and ultimately those angry crowds will will lead him straight to the cross, where he dies because they demand him to die for his message. This is a big deal. Jesus is failing at this moment in the story, isn't he? I mean, if we were just to read this story at face value, isn't Jesus failing? The moment our hero stops being able to do what we thought he could do, we start to get a little anxious. But here's the thing. Christ isn't working alone. He could have. 
He could have worked by himself. You see, you see, in Lord of the Rings, Gandalf couldn't have taken the ring on his own to destroy it. Why? Because he, he couldn't, said he couldn't handle the power. He said his heart wasn't strong enough. He couldn't have done it on his own. But Jesus isn't Gandalf. Jesus is Aslan. Jesus all-powerful. Jesus could have, in the same way Aslan could have saved all of Narnia without any help, Jesus could have saved all of humanity without bringing in anybody's help. But in Christ's wisdom and in Christ's grace, he chose to invite us to be co-laborers with him in his plan. And we saw this at the beginning of Mark where Jesus called his disciples to himself. Why did Jesus do that? Because Jesus is, is Lord both of the ends and of the means. And the means Jesus has chosen to do his work is partially through us. It's partially through those who follow him. Do you see that? Jesus has done a great work. Jesus did the hard work of the gospel. Jesus died on a cross for your sins. You couldn't do that. But in Jesus' mercy, he has now invited those who trust in him to do things that Jesus could have done on his own. You are called to do Jesus-like work. You are. This is the first point tonight. Discipleship is something started by Christ. Discipleship means a following. It's an active, intentional, progressive life of following someone. And it was started by Christ. This wasn't something Jesus made up. Jesus was intentional in bringing these 12 men. When Jesus called these men to himself, he's, he's like, hey, I'm going to have a great audience for what I'm doing. But when he called those 12 men, he knew that there would be a day when he would commission those 12 to go and do something for him. You see, if this rejection is the inciting incident, we should be yearning to see how the cause of Christ will advance and look at the response to it immediately after this. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey, except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were, and many who were sick and healed them. So when I first took over uh, leadership here at GCF, we had a, a barbecue um, in a park, Kiwanis Park down there. And the guy who was stepping out of leadership was going to introduce me. And so uh, I, I showed up and we, we ate some hot dogs and I think we played some kickball. And then uh, he gathered us all together and he introduced me. And then he said, uh, Tyler's now going to come up uh, with us uh, and share a short message. I was not aware of this. <laughs> I had no idea um, that this was, I was unprepared. I was caught off guard, and that was for like a 10-minute sermon. And you can Im only imagine the shock that the disciples just had at this, right? Because up until this point in the book of Mark, we've seen nothing from the disciples except the fact that they were called by Jesus. And so they're watching Jesus, right? They're freaking out when the storm is happening. They're probably terrified when demon crazy man ran out of the tombs and threw himself at Jesus' feet. And then they see Jesus like saying, oh, this daughter's dead or this daughter's sleeping, she's not dead. And they're like, Jesus, he's definitely dead. Um, like, the disciples haven't been, like, 
like honor roll students up until this point. And, and Jesus, though, Jesus is like, he's, he's calming storms and healing sick people and casting out demons and bringing dead people back to life. They're like, Jesus got this. And then they see this scene where Jesus goes to his hometown and instead of like this big welcome back parade, they try to murder him and he's forced out of town. And then Jesus, their hero, who's done everything, is like, okay, you guys got it from here? Go do work. And the, but we missed, we missed the 400-level class. We don't know what's going on here. I mean, can you imagine this? Jesus, God himself, was just rejected. And he's like, hey, guys, they won't have me, so let's see if they'll take you. Go for it. Go and do it. But this is exactly why Jesus called them. You see, Jesus didn't call them simply to have them with them. Jesus calls people in order to send people. And Jesus never sends people before first calling them to himself. Jesus is a God, and you saw that um, in verse 7. He called the 12, and then he sent the 12. Jesus is gracious both in the calling and in the sending. And this is the second point tonight. Discipleship is something started by Christ who empowered his church. You see, Jesus didn't run from his disciples. Jesus didn't send his disciples out not knowing what they were doing, in a sense, not ill-equipped for the task. He didn't send them out like naked sheeps in a pack of wolves. Why? Because he was with them. Because they knew Jesus. And in one sense, these men were totally ill-qualified for what they were set out to do. But in another sense, they were more than capable because Christ had empowered them. Because as they were being sent out by Christ himself, he says, I give you authority and I give you power. And this is true for us. The business of disciple making, the business of being a Christian is something that we are horribly underqualified for. And yet through Christ, we're able to do something that we never thought we were capable of doing. And what I love about this is that we see, it says clearly that he, uh, he gave them authority over unclean spirits. And we could get all weird, like, what does that mean? And what mystical powers do we have as Christians? But the report back we get in verse 12 is what? They went out and proclaimed that people should repent. You see, the disciples knew that the real power was not in the miracles or the magic of Jesus. The real power was in the message of Jesus. And everything else is a means to the message. True disciples are disciples because they're empowered by the message of Christ and carried by the power of Christ, but they have it in the right order. The message of Christ is ultimate to those disciples. And I love it because in this passage, Christ gives them authority, and then he says, hey, take with you a staff, uh, don't take a bag, don't take food, uh, you're in the Middle East, so don't take two coats, but you could bring sandals. And he sends them. And that could be like, well, was this like, is this like Survivor Man where I get dropped off and like I've got like, like six sticks and a roll of duct tape and Jesus is seeing what we'll do? No. Jesus said this because what Jesus is saying here is saying, when you're on my mission, I will provide for you. I am sufficient for where you're going. I am sufficient for your sustainability. I am sufficient for your longevity because I am your savior. And nowhere you go is outside of my sovereign hand. 
You see, Jesus will, as, as followers of Jesus, he will push us to do things we're uncomfortable with. He will push us to go places we're unfamiliar with. But he does so only after empowering us with the gospel and providing for us through his strength. You see, Jesus doesn't call you to be with him only in the safety of the church. He calls you to be with him and to go out for him. You see, Jesus, in his wisdom and in his grace, before the foundations of the world, Ephesians said, he commissioned his people to go places where Jesus is not. You see what just happened? Jesus is starting to get squeezed out of towns and rejection is mounting. And so he says, you men, take my message to places I am not. Take my message to places my message has not yet been proclaimed. And see, the, the thing is, is the person of Jesus is not in your dorm room, but you are. The person of Jesus doesn't work where you work, but you do. Why? Because God puts you there as a disciple for Christ to bring his message in a place where Jesus is not. This is God's plan. This was his plan all along. This isn't plan B. Jesus isn't like, well, I can't go somewhere, so let's have the church do it. No, you on mission as a disciple, as a follower, as a gospel proclaimer is exactly what Jesus wanted to do to bring his mission and his salvation to the ends of the earth. That is your task. That is your driving motivation. That is the sub-identity. Under Christ, we are ambassadors and disciples for Christ. This is what Jesus does to us. We are called into Christ in order to be empowered by Christ and sent out by Christ. And what is the greatest empowering? Is it this, this, this class? Is it this superhero academy we attend? No, the greatest power Christ gives us is an understanding of his gospel. And with that motivation, we go forth as disciples. And so, so Jesus here, um, in light of this tragedy in, in 6 verses 1 through 6, um, he commissions his disciples and he sends them. And look at what happened back in verses 12 and 13. And they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. You see, these men were inexperienced and underqualified, and yet through the power of the gospel, they were able to be faithful and effective witnesses for Christ. The same is true for you. We could bring up excuse after excuse after excuse. Why, at this point in your life, I can't preach Christ. At this point in my life, I can't enter into a conversation about Christ. I can't do anything for Christ. I'm not mature enough. I'm not, I'm not vocal enough. I, I'm not, I don't think clearly enough. That's not what happened here. Because they were with Jesus, they were effective and faithful witnesses. Christians, if you are Christian, you are capable of being a faithful witness. You are capable of being a true disciple of Christ. This is discipleship, being called to Christ, sent from Christ to labor for Christ. And the beauty is this. Look at what happens in the very next verse, verse 14. So we're kind of zooming out here. King Herod heard of it. What is it? What did we just see? The sending of the twelve. Herod heard of the works of the twelve, for Jesus' name had become known. Do you see that? The twelve went out, and they worked, and they labored, and they preached, and they healed. But who was made known? Jesus. 
You see, as we go forth as the church, people don't come away being like, man, that church, good job for the Protestant church. You see, as we go forward as Christians, we should be proclaiming and the glory should be going to Jesus alone. You see, the sign of a true disciple is that as we walk through this life, people aren't reliant on us. People aren't desperate for us. People are reliant and desperate about Jesus. You see, when I die, my wife will probably know about me for a little bit because she spent some time with me. Um, My son and my soon-to-be coming daughter will know about me maybe a few friends, but ultimately I'll be forgotten. But I pray that my Jesus won't be forgotten. I pray that everything I labor for here on this earth will be remembered not under the name of Tyler Valine, but under the name of Jesus Christ. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. You see, Mark does something interesting here with this text because we see in verses 13 or 12 and 13 this report. The disciples are going, they're doing, they're healing. Jesus' name is being known. But then he, he shoehorns in this the death of John the Baptist. And it's a really an odd story and a weird place for it to fall um, in, uh, in the literature. But I just want to read this to you, this story. Um, and it is a story, so however you want to hear it, you could either listen to me or you could read it or you could do both. But I just want you to hear this story, and we'll talk about why it's important. King Herod had heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work within him. But others said he is Elijah, one of the great Old Testament prophets. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He was terrified. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Okay, so first problem in this dialogue, Herod wants to marry his brother's wife. For, John was saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Okay, John, okay, John is taking a stance on biblical marriage here. You shouldn't be married to your brother's wife while your brother is alive. Okay. That's bad. So John goes and says this to Herod, and Herodias, which is Herod's wife, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter, that's his wife, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And he talked about holding a grudge, right? Um, And she came in and immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry because because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king set an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to his mother, her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So kind of a really odd interjection into the storyline here, right? We're seeing 
This, the disciples are going out. They're doing stuff. And then Mark's like, hey, guys. Uh, so Herod wants to marry his brother's wife. And John the Baptist is in prison. And he says no. And then Herod gets kind of conned into killing John the Baptist. And they put his head on a platter and give it to his wife. And then the disciples came back and reported great things. Well, why is this here? Why is it like, is this something where like the gospel writers are like, oh, I forgot about this. We should put it in here. No. Why? Because this, this, is, this is not a book with error. This is not sloppily put together. This is God's inspired and intentional word to us. So what is Mark trying to accomplish by reminding us of John's death here? Because immediately before this story, we hear a report of what the disciples are doing. And immediately after the story, we hear a report of what the disciples are doing. And both reports are positive. They're doing great things. They're doing wonderful things. And so what Mark is doing here is he's setting the table for the gamut of discipleship. You see, discipleship does experience good results. Faithful following of Jesus produces good results in you and in those around you. You will see fruit. You will see times of plenty. But you will see times of darkness of sadness, and of persecution. You see, in this story where we see the fruit of discipleship with the disciples, we also see the rejection of Jesus, which foreshadows his rejection on the cross. And we see the death of John the Baptist, which again foreshadows the death of Jesus. This is the final point tonight. Discipleship is something started by Christ who empowers his church to face persecution and plenty for the fame of of his name. You see, the disciples experienced momentary success through the proclamation of the message, but John was killed for his message. Same message, right? The voice in the wilderness crying out, repent and believe. That was John's message. The disciples go out and they say, repent and believe, and they bear fruit. John says, repent and believe, and he is murdered. Yet through both messages, Christ is made known. You see, discipleship, following Jesus, is not just an easy walk in the park, but neither is it a task too difficult for us. You see, people have e- either have this... Actually, it's not really polemic. Most of the time, people have this lollipops and flowers, roses of following Jesus. Like, man, if you just follow Jesus, if you just love Jesus, everything will go okay. Everything will be perfect. Everything will be happy. People will respond lovingly to you. And you hear this phrase, I'm sure many of you hear it, Christ will never bring you um, to something that you can't handle. Christ will never give you something that is too big for you. Well, it depends upon what your definition of big for you is. Nine of the 12 disciples were murdered for their faith. That's pretty big. Does that promise not apply to them? Or is that just not a real promise? That's just not a real promise. Jesus promises power and eternal security through salvation. Jesus never promises an easy and safe life here on earth. And what Mark is doing by sandwiching hardship and success is he's doing two things for us. First, it frames our expectations for following Christ. Following Christ is good. It is fruitful. The gospel works. The gospel saves. The gospel forces people to respond. But it's also hard. It's also sad. It's also lonely at times. There are much tears involved in it. But secondly, 
Mark writes this because it's here to encourage us. And I want us to be mindful of who John the Baptist was. Okay, John the Baptist, those of you who were with us at the beginning of the book, he had a, a band of merry men of his own. He had his own disciples um, like Jesus did. He also, like Jesus, preached a, a message of belief and repentance. He, like Jesus, was an itinerant preacher who wandered around in the countryside preaching to the masses. He, like Jesus, was brought before leaders at the end of his life. And like Jesus, he was killed by men who caved to peer pressure. You see, I want us to, to understand that, that John's life mimicked the life of Jesus. It really did. John was, in talking about what he experienced here on this earth, and talking about the time frame, no one's life mirrored that of Jesus as much as John the Baptist. In fact, look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. Verse 11, the first part, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. This John is a big deal. John the Baptist is a huge deal. He was a man of all men, but look at how Jesus finishes that verse. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Those are kind of conflicting statements, right? No one born of women has ever been greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a man above other men. He stands above you. He is above you. He will be above you. But even the least born in the kingdom of God, even the least believer in Christ is greater. Why? Because John proclaimed his message faithfully. He did. God gave him a message and he proclaimed it. He proclaimed a great message, but John was just a placeholder. John's job was never to be Christ. His job, like a true disciple, was to point people towards Christ. But that still doesn't answer the question. Why is it that we who are in Christ greater than, those, uh, greater than John the Baptist? Why? Think about that. No one's greater, but those who are in Jesus are greater. Why? Because we we New Testament Christians have seen the glory of Christ on the cross. John never had that opportunity. John was murdered before the fullness of Christ was displayed on the cross, before the fullness of faith was seen clear in a Savior who died in our place. You see, John had a message, and John had a great message, but we have a greater motivation than John's message. We do. And I love the juxtaposition, um, literally, in this where it says, uh, verse 29, when his disciples, that's John's disciples, when his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And then immediately after it, the scene shifts to Jesus' apostles. And the apostles returned to Jesus and told them all that they had done and taught. You see, John's disciples came and took his body to a grave. Jesus' disciples came and took his message to the ends of the earth. Why? Because there was a greater motivation because there was a greater power, and that's your encouragement. What John hoped for, what the prophets longed for, is what we have seen. We have seen God become flesh and live among us on a perfect life. We've seen him bear our sins and die in our place and rise again to loose the pangs of death and then to gather us to him and commission us and send us. We've seen a Savior who's not only forgiven us, but then has granted us purpose and identity and working and laboring for and through him. We've seen a Savior who calls us to himself and sends us to himself. You see, why is the cross of Christ the greatest social movement the world has ever seen? Because we have a different and greater motivation than the world has ever seen. 
We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and been brought into the marvelous light of King Jesus because Christ has removed the scales from our eyes and all we see is Christ and Christ crucified and everything is secondary to that. And out of that motivation, we do disciple things. We do Jesus-like things. You see, why were the disciples able not to just look the part but act the part? Because Jesus not only called them, because he, he also empowered them. This is discipleship. This is a life of following. So here's the deal. In this text, we see three groups of people. And my question to you in closing is, who are you? Are you a Nazarene? Are you someone who, who is seen and is familiar with the works of Jesus and yet you reject him? Are you the people who say, it's just a man, it's just a fairy tale, it's just a good story to keep the masses at bay. How can a man do what Jesus claims to do? Is that even a real need? Is that even something that has to happen and so you choose not to follow him? Are you like Herod? Look back at Mark 6.20. Mark says this, For Herod feared John, knowing he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. But look at what he says here. When he heard him, that's when Herod heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. You see, Herod heard what John the Baptist was saying, and he was amused by it. He liked John the Baptist to a certain degree. This is a good guy. But as John the Baptist pointed to Jesus, it didn't click. Is this you? Are you somebody who sees Jesus as a good moral leader, as something that for some people is really needed and really nice, but for you, it's not really true? Are you just grateful to, have a, a, to see the good people that come out of Christianity? Are you the parent who says, you know, if my kid wants to believe in Christianity, that's good because they've got good morals and they produce good people, but you yourself are unwilling to follow that Jesus? Or are you like the disciples, sent out into the world with nothing but the message of Jesus, but so motivated by the power of Christ that you're willing to do whatever it takes to be Jesus' disciple? That out of the knowledge of who it is you spend your time, you're willing to face persecution and plenty, not for the fame of your name, but for the glory of Christ. You see, the Nazarenes refused to follow Christ because they saw him as just a man. Herod refused to follow Christ because he saw him as just an entertainer, as a novelty. But the disciples followed Christ in ways that we couldn't imagine because they saw Christ as their Savior. And out of that reality, the wholeness of their life took place. Out of that reality, they were content to face persecution and plenty. Out of that reality, they preached a message of faith and repentance, and they knew that it would work regardless of if they were standing there to see it work or not. Philippians 3, 7 through 8, Paul says this, he says, but whatever I gain, I had, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. See, that's the motivation of a social movement. That's the motivation that you have as a disciple of Christ. Why should you do disciple things? Because Christ has freed you to do it. Why should you be a follower? Why should you do what Christ has enabled you to do? Because you are in awe of what Christ did for you on the cross. So if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, if you look at those three groups and be like, I am that disciple, my question to you is, are you doing the work of a disciple? Are you doing it? Objectively, look at, now we, we tend, those of you who are Christians in here can Christianize that word and be like, yeah, I do the work of a disciple. But stop and look at your life. What is it that you are doing with your life daily which identifies you as a disciple of Jesus Christ? 
You see, Jesus has empowered those who are Christian with his gospel. That is the driving motivation. So my question to help you solve that is looking at your life, looking at your circumstances, looking at your skills, looking at your location. What is it you have to give away right now? What is it you have to give away? Do you have free time? Do you have a skill? Do you have a passion? Do you have a talent? If I told you right now to come up here and and do something for the benefit of the group, what would that be? And when you've identified that, understand that God has given you those giftings and those talents for a purpose of proclaiming his message. That's what it means to be a disciple. So this week, I want you to look at your life and I want you to see what that is. What, What is your talent? What is my passion? And what is my position? And I want you to look at that really intentionally, really honestly, and say, am I using what God has granted me for the fame of Jesus' name? You see, G.K. Chesterton has once said that Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. You know what? Being a disciple of Jesus is hard. But being a disciple of Jesus is deeply rewarding, both in this life and in the next. And the motivation of knowing what Christ did for my sins and my place on that cross pushes me to do things I don't want to do for the glory of King Jesus. Christ has carried the ultimate weight of your sin. He's commissioned you to do hard work for your good and for his glory. Repent and follow Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this message. Lord, we pray that you make us more faithful disciples and you do so not by forcing imperatives on us of what we do as disciples, but I pray that you you wrestle us to the ground with the goodness of the gospel so that before we we know what disciples do, we know what disciples are. Disciples are blood-bought children of a living Savior. Lord, I pray that that shapes our identity and that we don't do because we have to do, but we do because we're free to do through the power of Christ. We do because we see the weight and glory of the gospel. And so everything we do is secondary to proclaiming Christ in all circumstances, to all people, to all the nations, for all eternity till Christ comes to take us home. We pray this in your name. Amen.